So this concert was, was pretty cool. Yeah. To say that, I mean, so I wore multiple hats, right? But before I get into that, this concert, it was intended to be more than a concert, right? It was intended to be an event, but an educational event for the world to know, for New York City to know, for the musicians to know the origins of Shedrick. And when this conversation started about this project, it was before the latest incursion of the war, right? It was before Russia decided to cross the border and come in in its current state. So we started this conversation. And when I say we, I want to underline there were multiple parties that were involved in this process. And this started back in uh, 2019, 2020, that there were conversations about how to best put this event back on at Carnegie Hall and tell the world Shedrick is a Ukrainian song, right? Shedrick was written by a Ukrainian composer and understanding the role of cultural diplomacy. The different iterations of where this project was going and how it got to where it was took on a whole new meeting after February 24th. I mean, this project was already in motion, but the organizers and I, and I was, like I said, I, I wore multiple hats in this. I'm actually a board member of the Ukrainian Contemporary Music Festival, which is one of the co which was one of the co-presenters of the event. Uh, I did volunteer with Razum to help out with some of the finances for the event. And I was there as a musician on stage and also in my current role as president of the Ukrainian Bandures Chorus. So I had multiple hats and saw this from different perspectives. And along the way, I learned what the true mission here. It wasn't just about showing the Bandura or, you know, from my perspective, it was showing the rich cultural identity that we have. And it doesn't matter if you're from the diaspora or from Ukraine originally, you know, you're from Ukraine. We all share in this cultural identity, which is trying to be wiped out right now. So it just took on a whole new meeting after, after February 24th and saying, we have to make sure that all of these different composers, whether they're a contemporary composer or whether they're a composer from the 19th century or the 20th century, their voice needs to be heard. So that's what we did. And there's another bit of significance associated with that because it was the 100th anniversary of that same piece being played in that same venue in 1922, Carol of the Bells debuted, and since then it's become this Christmas classic that everybody hears every holiday season, and it's everywhere. Absolutely, and and that was, you know, that when I was what I said earlier about wanting the world to know that Shtedrik is a Ukrainian composition. When that debuted by the Koshets Choir back in, uh, or excuse me, uh, under Maestro Koshets under the uh, the capella that came over in 1922 so that was its debut at carnegie hall in 1922 a north american debut uh, to be to be exact and yeah you're right that song has been in multiple car commercials multiple you know anytime christmas time comes around you listen to the radio if people still listen to the radio they'll hear different commercials you know you even heard it on uh, um even hear it on or iterations of it on TV with, uh, oh, what's the name of that? Um, are they Ding Freiser done? Ding Freiser done. <laughs> I forgot the name of that TV show. It was the cartoon characters. I'm sorry, your listeners are probably going to be like, wow, this guy doesn't listen to or watch any TV. But the the world, I mean, it's, it's this song and the melody, those famous four notes have been a true cultural export for Ukraine. But people just didn't know, or a lot of people didn't know that it's of Ukrainian origins. It was written by that Ukrainian composer, Mikola Leontovich, 
and that is part of Ukraine's cultural identity. Let's back up a little bit. Sure. I know there probably are some people listening who are bilingual and know exactly what you're talking about. And there are some people who are like, okay, let's, let's get some translation going here or some backstory. So I want to start off here. What's a bandura? And what so, does it do? Okay. So what is a bandura and what does it do? So first of all, I will define a bandura first as a voice of Ukraine. And what I mean by that, it is a musical instrument that has 60, that is six zero, not one six, but 60 strings on it. And this instrument has evolved over the centuries, not over the decades, but over centuries as a voice of Ukraine. The people that used to play a bandura or the origin of the bandura is called a kobza. And a kobza could have 12 strings, 16 strings, and a kobza was played by what is known as a kobzar, who would travel from village to village in Ukraine and tell a story. So the kobzar, who is a blind minstrel, would go to the village to village, tell different stories, and think about a kobzar as the, as the new source of the day, right? In 18th century Ukraine, well, it, anywhere in the 18th century in the world, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have really newspapers in their current format. We didn't have social media. They were the social media, right? It just took days, not milliseconds to get information out there. So these kobzars or kobzari would go from village to village. And then let's fast forward to the 20th century. You had different ensembles that were formed uh, in Ukraine with bandura players. The ensemble that I have been playing with since I've been age 14 is called the Ukrainian Bandurist Chorus of North America which its origins are out of the Kobzar choir in Kiev, Ukraine in 1918. So yes, your listeners heard correctly. I'm part of an ensemble that's over a hundred years old. And it's important to, I think, underline what, what that means, because it's not just about this instrument, but what is this instrument seen and how it's been almost wiped out by the Russians and the Soviet regime multiple times, right? So that's why I wanted to preface saying that the bandura is a voice of Ukraine. Yes, it is a musical instrument, but it is a musical instrument that is uniquely Ukrainian, part of Ukraine's cultural identity. It is a it is that voice that helps exemplify Ukraine's cultural identity. So our ensemble has toured throughout the world, throughout North America, uh, Australia, Europe, and Ukraine. But uh, just to give a quick overview of the history. So basically, after its formation, uh, after 1918, up through World War II, the group or the ensemble was unfortunately disbanded at times because of war, because of the uh, Holodomor and other reasons. And during World War II and after World War II, the group was able or the ensemble was able to actually reorganize in the displaced persons camps in Germany. And from there, they ended up in Detroit, Michigan. Now, how did they end up in Detroit, you're going to ask me, uh, which is the hometown that Danilo and I are from, or Dan and I are from, and where we got to know each other. Uh, basically, at the time, that's where there were a lot of jobs. And we had, and the ensemble had uh, quite a few friends in the Detroit area, and then also in Europe that connected them to get them over to the United States, where a lot of these professional musicians that were part of this ensemble, or the Ukrainian Bandurist course, actually ended up going to work on the factory lines of Motown. They started building cars at GM, at Chrysler, at uh, Ford. 
and doing other type of labor work. But they also wanted to continue the mission and continue that voice of Ukraine through the Bandura. So basically from 1949 onward to today, the ensemble has, uh, I would say, exemplified its mission or has increased its mission to continue being that voice of Ukraine. Uh, we've done tours all throughout North America. Uh, but what we've focused on in the last 20 years is collaborative projects with modern artists and friends of the Ukrainian Bandura's chorus and trying to show the Bandura still within the Ukrainian-American or Ukrainian-Canadian community and overall diaspora, uh, but also working with artistic organizations and university music schools and other contemporary type or arts organizations to show that the Bandura can be not just what may be considered a traditional instrument, but also a very much modern instrument that showcases a new voice of Ukraine. So the art form that you are participating in has its roots with traveling musicians who are giving an oral history of the day. And you're a traveling musician now playing a similar instrument. You're saying 60 strings. So it's sort of like, in my mind, a cross between a harp and a guitar or a a harp and a mandolin, something along those lines. That's it. And I'll tell you, my mother has probably one of the best descriptions. It almost looks like a pregnant guitar okay. because of the way that it sits out. So I'll, I'll, we'll have to get a picture so your listeners can uh, take a look at it. And so the, you're now carrying the oral tradition or the musical tradition of these obzars. Sorry for my pronunciation. <laughs> From uh, hundreds of years of Ukrainian tradition to today. And you were saying the significance of it obviously has become much more important since the full-scale invasion because you're doing practically the same thing. So this is an art form that was um, uh, many times at risk of disappearing. Absolutely. And again, we're facing you know, the same threat, I guess. So the, the, the ensemble, does it have any connection to the ensemble that performed Carol of the Bells in Carnegie Hall in 1922? That's a great question. And I actually don't know, you know, if there was any connections between the ensemble that started, meaning the Kubzad Choir and the choir that came over. I'm sure that there were some people that knew each other as musicians and whatnot, but um, I think the, the only connection that... I can make, and this is purely on, on my own accord, uh, not on behalf of the organization, as knowing how close-knit musicians are. And, you know, I'm sure that there was, you know, brothers and sisters and cousins and whatnot. And uh, as they say in Ukrainian, kume, you know, people that know each other very closely, <laughs> somehow all knew each other. Uh, but I don't know of any direct musicians that were both in the Ukrainian Mandurist course and in the national um, ensemble that came over in 1922. What's your first memory of the Bandura? Oh, that's easy. I remember when the Bandura was taller than I was. So my father played it. And I remember the first time seeing it. And I go, what is that? Right? Because it was actually taller than me. And, and for your listeners, again, you won't see me, but I'm about six foot three. So I was not six foot three at age three, but I was a tall kid. Well, there's no need but... to brag, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I bring this up because... It's truly, it's it's truly unique. I mean, I, I I love music. I appreciate music. 
but when you, you know, I remember as a kid seeing a violin or, you know, a trombone or obviously a piano, we're all, we all have an opportunity to see those. But the first time I realized that my father was doing something different, I said, I wanted to do that, you know, and I basically fell in love with the instrument at that time. It took me a while to figure out how to play it, obviously. And, you know, I, I started taking lessons from him. And then our ensemble organizes a Bundura education program which I later on became administrator of, and I'm no longer in that role, but I'm, uh, I help out the new administration just with some strategy and fundraising and things of that nature uh, to help them grow their program. And that's how I got involved in Bandura. And then I auditioned with the ensemble when I was 14 and was let in. So that first impression, I just wanted to play it because I thought it was cool. My dad was playing it and I said, I want to do that. Later on, as I got I don't want to say older, but as I matured, I realized the significance of what I need to do with it, right? And that has evolved over time. Because there was a period there where I just thought I'd be cool to play some music, both Ukrainian, then maybe I can, you know, throw in some Zeppelin and do something else and try to figure out what I can do. But as many of us have learned over time, and you learn your history, you know, I quickly understood that I was in a unique role, that there may be 500 million people in the world. And again, I don't know if the estimate is correct, so please don't uh, hold me to this, but there could be 500 million people in the world that play the violin or the, or the piano. Right now, there might be only a couple thousand to play bandura. So I have an obligation because I was taught this. I was taught by multiple people, not just my father. And I am in a group. I am in this society that very much honors that and is a guardian of that even more so right now. And it is my obligation. It is my duty to make sure that people know about this instrument, to make sure that people understand its significance to our history and the future. So that's where, that's where I'm at today. So from that little kid who was shorter than the instrument, you now lug around the country and the world to playing at Carnegie Hall. Um, I imagine that you might have not ever expected as a kid that you'd play Carnegie Hall. But let's talk about that. Okay. What was it like? Surreal, bittersweet. As a, from a purely from a musician standpoint, you know that Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous venues in the world. And I was, I was fortunate uh, a number of years ago, I was in New York City for a weekend and I was doing some reconnaissance work basically for the Bandura's course. And I'm talking like well over 10 years ago. And at the time, the Carnegie staff had showed me a hall within Carnegie because Carnegie actually has three venues in it. Uh, there's a Zenko Hall, which is about a 600-seat auditorium, and then there's a Stern Auditorium, which is the major concert venue in Carnegie Hall that seats well over 2,700 people. And I remember seeing it. Just I didn't have a chance to stay, stand on the stage, but they opened up the door just so I can get a taste of it. And I thought to myself, man, this is, you know, this is the this is the grand slam. At least in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, this is the grand slam of concert venues, right? To use a baseball analogy. So fast forward to December 4th, 2022, we get to Carnegie Hall and we actually uh, had to enter through the musician entrance or the artist entrance, which is on 56th Street. And it's a maze, like walking through it, trying to find a dressing room and all of that was a, was a maze in itself. 
But then when you get to the stage, everything goes quiet. You are in awe. It's like, and again, I know that you love baseball. So do I, it's like your first time going to a baseball game, right? As a kid, your parents take you or your father takes you or whoever takes you. This was just like that for a musician. This is to me, the grand slam for musicians. So at first you're in awe and then you realize why you're there. But that latter point that I just brought up, I didn't realize that until we walked out onto stage, onto the stage, 2,700 people looking back at you and you see Ukrainian flags all throughout the venue. And then when the children's choir, Shedrik choir from Kiev that came over and the audience went absolutely, I mean, I've never seen a welcome like that for anybody standing ovation for these 55 children that safely traveled from Kiev to Warsaw, then flew to New York and made their way on the stage and to share that moment with them and to hear that support was purely incredible. So from a musician standpoint, uh, I've been fortunate to perform in some wonderful uh, venues around the world from Paris's Cathedral of Notre Dame to the Lviv Opera House in Ukraine, uh, to Massey Hall in Toronto with Ruslana, who is a Eurovision artist and a great ambassador for Ukraine, a uh, great musician ambassador, uh, you know, artist for Ukraine. But this was, but December 4th at Carnegie Hall was truly a unique experience. And like I said earlier, it was bittersweet because you realize why you're there, right? It's one thing to be there to share music, which most people do. You know, they have how many concerts a year, hundreds of concerts a year, but we were there to, to, to send a message, right? It's sending that cultural diplomacy message, but also amplifying Ukraine's voice and making sure that the world, because that concert was live streamed, making sure the world knew that about Ukraine's tenacity for freedom, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of uh, artistry, and that we have our own musician army that will amplify a voice while Ukraine's army does its work as well. It's it's interesting to me because, you know, having a little bit of knowledge of the Ukrainian Bandurist chorus myself, having growing up, grown, having grown up with vinyl records and then later, you know, other types of recording CDs of the ensemble's work, having witnessed the live performances, some a number of them myself. It's it's amazing to me to see that what people don't often realize is maybe like the Funk, the Funk Brothers for Motown or the assembly line of the rhythm section, the Ukrainian Bandurist chorus, especially in its original formation in Detroit, were a lot of auto workers who would leave the assembly line to then with their calloused hands, play this enormous harp <laughs> and, and sing these incredible pieces with three, four part harmonies. And in, in, in essence, not, not a one of you are professional musicians in that it's your only gig, right? That's correct. We're all volunteers. We're all volunteers, but we have a mission to keep the highest artistic integrity and the highest professional artistic integrity. We do have musicians in the ensemble that obviously we've all taken music lessons in some shape or form, right? Uh, we're very fortunate that we have a great group of, of newer musicians or of musicians that are recent immigrants from Ukraine. And when I say recent, they could have been here for, they, they may have been here or already here for the last 20 years or last few years. 
uh, one of which was a professional musician, but he's now volunteering uh, in the U.S. Uh, with us. And his day job is no longer a professional musician. He drives a transport truck, right? But is a phenomenal voice and is an incredible person. He took to the mission and understands it. So yeah, going to your point, back in 1949, you had a group of professional musicians who went on the line. Like I said, worked for the automotive, you know, the big three. Over time, that evolved. And what I mean by what that evolved is the ensemble wasn't just based out of Detroit. We started developing in the 60s and then the 70s music- musicians in other parts of North America, mainly Chicago, Cleveland, and Toronto. A couple times you'd, you'd have a few people from, let's say, the East Coast. Fast forward to 2022, and we have we're still we are a 501c3 based organization in the state of Michigan. However, and our base is still in Michigan. We still have a, uh, a group of musicians in, in the Detroit area. But today we have musicians not only in Detroit and Windsor, but Toronto, Cleveland, Syracuse, New York. Uh, I live in Philly and I have in Philadelphia. So I have another, there's another musician here, two more that are here with me. We have two in New York City. We have one in Boston. Uh, in the Western part of Canada and the United States, we have musicians in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And we have three musicians in California. And we have another musician that goes back between Chile and California and still finds time to be active with us. We spend our weekends. So how we rehearse is we put a lot of um, the, the higher artistic standard that I was talking about earlier. It's on the musician. It's incumbent on the musician to learn his music and to come to rehearsal prepared. Rehearsals are not where you learn the music. Rehearsals are where you fine tune it and make sure that you can get it onto the stage, right? Or whatever outreach activity that you're doing to showcase this and be that voice, be that ambassador of that voice of, uh, of Ukraine and the Bandura. So our musicians, we do virtual rehearsals now, which have been great that it started during the COVID era, but has continued because we found that that's a great way to learn new music so we're able to adapt to the technology that's available out there to learn new music and then work on our own and then sometimes work in our own regions and whatnot. But when we get together on a rehearsal weekend, you know, just to give your listeners an idea, you got about 40 people that are in this active ensemble right now, or excuse me, 40 musicians in the active concert ensemble from all the different regions that I was talking about. We'll get together on a Saturday and rehearse up to nine hours. And then on Sunday, we'll rehearse another five hours. And then everybody travels home, right? So you travel in, you travel out from all those different regions. Those rehearsals tend to happen in either in Detroit or Cleveland. So that's how the organization or the ensemble has evolved from 1949 to 2022. And there's nothing stopping us or pausing us. COVID couldn't pause us, right? We, we knew from a leadership standpoint back in 2020, when all this happened, that we had to find a way uh, to do something different in order to keep a group together because it's difficult to keep volunteers together in one city, 40 volunteers in one city, let alone across North America. But we did it. And that's a testament to, I don't want to say just leadership, artistic and administrative leadership, but that's a testament to the people that are in the ensemble that truly believe in the mission and know that they have a role to play and an even stronger role right now. And then we pivoted very quickly in February, you know, after February 24th, we said we have to do what we can to support Ukraine during this time. So in April, 
we worked very quickly and in less than one month we turned around and had a benefit concert in the metropolitan detroit area at the mccomb center for the performing arts where we had over 800 people uh, that came out you know who of ukrainian descent non-ukrainian descent everybody that wanted to support ukraine we did the same thing in cleveland in june uh, at severance hall which is another premier venue in uh, the united states and we've been working ever since so 40 members of an ensemble, some of which might be truck drivers, some of which might be lawyers or judges, but when they get on that stage or in that rehearsal space, they're all equals. Absolutely. We all put on our costumes the same. We all tune our bandura the same. It doesn't matter if you're a, a lawyer or an attorney, excuse me, a doctor or a you know retiree or a student, and we're all the same. So what's next for the Ukrainian Bandurist Chorus of North America? Now that you've played Carnegie Hall, you've, you're probably done, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, it's, it's interesting that you ask that. And I, I say that because our ensemble has performed there before. Actually, our last concert was in 1983. So it was almost 40 years ago. Uh, but when the ensemble came over in 1949, one of its earliest concerts in the United States uh, on its first, what we'll call the East Coast tour, was actually in Carnegie Hall. So the ensemble has a history of being there. So I think that's also something interesting to know. Is like, yes, we've done it. Yes, we've been there. But the mission goes past any venue. Like, again, all due respect to any concert venues in the world, we still have a legacy. We still have to think about the next 100 years. So, you know, when you ask what's, what is the ne what's next for us? We're thinking 10, 20, 100 years down the line. Like, where is the bandura? What is the bandura going to be as an instrument? And how are we going to support that? And how do we make more bandura, more instruments available to other people to play? Those who are interested that are of Ukrainian descent and who are not interested of Ukrainian descent. The way that I look at it is the bandura is a can be a universal instrument. It's, it's a fascinating, um, and there's a fascinating story behind it, right? And musically, it's quite diverse. So I think that, uh, not that I think, I know that's something that we're working on. In terms of performances and programming, things that we're looking at doing, we actually established what we call a Bandura Lab, which gives our instrumentalists, and actually this is something else that I should probably uh, outline for your listeners. When I say we have 40 musicians, and I'll come back to the Bandura Lab in a second, it, it should be important to note that the 40 musicians, there's about 12 of us that play the instrument and the remainder of the ensemble is a choir broken up into four parts, tenor one, tenor two, baritone and bass. So, uh, so we, we tend to, most of our performances are with a full ensemble or sometimes it can be with a smaller ensemble if we're doing an outreach to a university or somewhere. I uh, still have the four parts and the instrumentalist as well, but we'll do in a smaller ensemble. But the Bandura Lab is something that I wanted to bring up because it's, it's basically an innovation and it allows our instrumentalists, so the actual Bandura players, to play new music that isn't just for the ensemble, but it's a way to highlight the Bandura. So we have a, a small group of five to six that are working on this project that they're looking to bring in composers for the bandura that it's just not ukrainian music it could be obviously very much non-ukrainian music and something that we want to share and we want to use that or leverage that so people can see the bandura in a different light right so that it is more of a universal instrument so thinking about programming the bandura lab is part of it thinking down the road making more bandure available for people 
we know that one of our roles here is in being a guardian of this. So we have to protect the tradition of it. At the same time, we have to open up opportunities to work with and continue collaborating with other artistic organizations, whether they're Ukrainian or not, and also being open to uh, finding new audiences. That's something that we're, we're actively working on right now is understanding how do we introduce the Bandura to new audiences, whether it's through other artistic organizations, whether it's through university music schools, uh, whether it's at a Saturday Ukrainian school. We do a lot of that. We've been doing a lot of that for the last 10 years. Anytime that we'll visit a certain city, we'll go into, and maybe some of, maybe some, not all of your listeners don't know what a Saturday Ukrainian school is. But what I will say is if you've ever seen the, my, the, the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, just replace that with Ukrainian and it's the same thing, right? You, they heard about Greek school on Saturdays and whatnot. So Ukrainians have the same thing. So what we'll do is we'll go into a city, whether it's Chicago or Philadelphia, Detroit or Cleveland. We've done it in Los Angeles. We've done it up in Winnipeg, uh, Alberta. We've done it in Toronto. We'll go into a Saturday school and play a few songs, talk to the students, get them excited about the bandura, about the instrument and about the mission. And they go home and tell their parents. And all of a sudden, some of them want to start playing bandura. And how we know that impact has helped us is that this year, in August of this year, we had our Bandura camp that I was talking about earlier, and over 80% of the enrollees were new to the Bandura. That's, we have not seen that in a very long time. So we know that that work that we've been putting into that outreach and having uh, great leadership in those roles uh, through other members of the ensemble and, or other musicians of the ensemble and those who are collaborating with other Bandura players, has really paid off for us uh, and for the Bandura. Anatoly Murha, thank you so much for doing the Ukraine Watch podcast. Next time you're in Chicago, you got to let me know ahead of time and we can do a live uh, broadcast on Ukrainian Independent Radio and get uh, more people in seats, although I'm assuming you're going to be sold out anyway, so it might not matter, but you can do it as a courtesy to me. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I, I appreciate this opportunity. And I want to say to your listeners, whether you're, uh, especially your listeners in Chicago, uh, I've always enjoyed visiting your city. I'm looking forward to coming back. Uh, I've just always had a great time in Chicago. So I, I am very much looking forward to coming back and all your listeners uh, outside of Chicago. Uh, and for everybody in Chicago, if you haven't uh, looked us up yet while you've been listening to my voice going on here. You can visit us at bandura.org. Bandura That's B as in boy, A, N as in Nancy, D as in David, U-R-A.org. Uh, believe it or not, we're also on social media. So we're on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, I'll, I'll pass those links along to you, and yeah, we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. We'll put it in the show notes. So bandura.org, B-A-N-D-U-R-A.org. You got it. Thanks for the great conversation. Thank you.